Today on the We Invested podcast, we have Eric Miller. He is the co-owner of Econologics Financial Advisors and the chief financial advisor. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you very much. Absolutely, man. I'm excited to learn more about you know this company that you've built and created. But before we get started, would you mind letting the people know where they can find you on the internet as far as your website or social media? Yeah, you can just go to Econologics Financial Advisors uh, or Econologics. Uh, we have a YouTube channel called the Financial Beast channel. And mm. uh, those would probably be the two main ways that you can uh, you can connect with us. Awesome, man. And, uh, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about that YouTube channel, man. That sounds interesting. I like the name yeah. of it. The yeah. Financial Beast, man. What What is that about? How did you get started in the YouTube world? Like what led you to that uh. path? Well, I think the financial beast where we came up with that, I mean, honestly, I was working with uh, uh, one of our clients <clears throat> and I was looking at his financials and he was like, you know, he had a business that was probably doing like, I don't know, like four or five million dollars. And, and that's pretty good for like a vet. It was a veterinary client and mm -hmm. he had uh, paid off his house. He had, you know, tons of cash. He was like 30 something years old. He was completely out of debt. And I was just like, God, this dude's a beast. And yeah. that's where it came from. It was like, so we just, I kind of, from there, I was like, what does it take to like become a financial beast? Like, what are those things that you would need? And really when I say financial beast, it's just someone that is like, we talked a little bit about mindsets, like someone that just says, you know what, you know, I can complain about the outside economy, but honestly, um, you know, I am in control of my own personal economy. And that's what a financial beast actually is. Someone that is feels like they're in control of their own personal economy. Absolutely, man. And it sounds like the main theme of that is, you know, taking accountability for, you know, the outcome of your life, man, and, and what you what we can control and what we can um, improve, improving where we can. Yeah. But, um, you know, a little bit earlier, we were talking about... Um, you know, Florida and the beautiful weather out there and talking a little bit about Reno, but I typically start my interviews off asking people, you know, where they're from and where they grew up. So, you know, would you mind explaining and, and talking a little bit about that? No, grew up in Ohio. So I'm a, you know, I was born and raised a Buckeye and, uh, uh, really always liked the, the personal finance area. Didn't know much about it. Would always like read the paper and be like, you know, I don't understand this stuff, but something tells me I probably should know a little bit about it. Um, you know, coming from Ohio, you know, you're either going to be like a, a teacher, a coach, uh, law enforcement or something like that. And I just, that really wasn't what my, I wanted my game to be. Uh, I got fortunate enough to move down to Florida, started a financial planning company. And, you know, we did it in 2008, you know, I don't know how old you Ooh. are, but 2008 was probably not the best year to start a financial planning company at that point in time. Everyone was, you know, paralyzed in fear. And, you know, we just said, look, let's just do it. I wanted to help entrepreneurs. I wanted to help business owners because I knew that they were in those kinds of people had the mindset that they're in charge of their outcome. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be able to help those people. But and we, you know, we selected a niche that I work primarily with healthcare professionals. So a lot of veterinarians, a lot of dentists physical therapist, optometrist, you know, people that in that really weren't born to be business people. They wanted to be healthcare people, but they need a lot of financial help. So that's where we kind of geared our business towards. Absolutely, man. And and that's a huge indicator of or a, a huge piece of the recipe to be successful in business and to be a successful entrepreneur is to lock in and find a niche yeah. and i think it's really interesting that in the financial space you guys you decided to focus on the healthcare space and helping healthcare professionals so like how did you come up with that idea was it trial and error or is it something that was was like um near and dear to your heart so to speak well I, my i come from a healthcare family so i knew that you know these people um, their purpose isn't to make a bunch of money. It is to help, help people. And when I started working with healthcare practitioners, you know, these people go to school for seven years, man, to learn how to be, you know, a doctor in some field. Uh, but they never were taught about personal finances, uh, mm -hmm. at all. And so I saw that they were very much underserved. 
Uh, and that, that really is what kind of led me to want to work with them and just help make sure. Cause look, when they, when they got their money, right, they can expand, they can see more patients, they can help more people, they can hire more people. And I think that that's all part and parcel of what my role is, is to make sure they feel confident and in control of their money because it's not easy right now. It's just not easy for a lot of these, uh, these practitioners. And when you don't know how to control money, then, you know, bad things can happen. So that's, that's why I got into this niche, but you're right. It is important because that's one thing I learned really early on. Like if I'm going to help a veterinarian or a dentist or somebody or a doctor with their, with their finances, then I got to know something about their, like their biggest investment and their biggest investment isn't a 401k. It's not their house. It's their business. That's their biggest investment. And so I had to learn like, what drives revenue? What, how do you increase the value of these things? You know, mm -hmm. what, how do you get this thing prepared to sell for maximum value? Which is what a lot of business owners don't do. They, they own a business, but really all they do is they have a job and they never look at it as an investment. And I try to steer people towards that concept. Absolutely. So in your own words, what is Econologics Financial Advisors? So simply put um if you look at i'll give you the the breakdown of the word econologics because you're like what does this word mean you know it's like good god really and simply if you look at the 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 term economy it really boils down to uh, the original derivation of that word means the management of a household because you look at like a nation itself or like a uh, a culture right and what is it made up of it's made up of families, the family unit. It's made up of households. And the condition of that country is really representative of the condition of all the households in that, in that, uh, in, in that, you know, in that country. So the word economy actually meant the management of a household, like learning how to manage the household, the finances of a household. And then ology means study of, and then, uh, Ecos means practices and skills. So the, the word basically means the practices and skills, the study of the practices and skills of the management of the household, financially speaking. That's where the word came up with. Probably need to change it because it's kind of complex and I got to explain that all the time, but it's kind of a cool sounding word. Um, Absolutely. But, but it is, but that's really all. My job is to make sure people realize that their household should be looked at as like the parent company. Like in corporate America, you'll see that a lot of uh, a lot of these big corporations have parent companies. Your household's the parent company, and your job is to is to fortify financially that parent company so that it can operate in a in a manner that um, you know has multiple income sources, free of all bad debt, uh, and you know is is protected from taxes, inflation, and lawsuits. So that's that. My job is is to make sure people do that. Absolutely, man. And I, me personally, I like the name. I think it's, All right. I think it's a we'll dope name and it's a good we'll, name. We'll keep it there. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned that you've always been interested in personal finance. So I'm going to ask and, and kind of understand how exactly you got started in this industry. What was the initial spark for you that let you know that you wanted to pursue this uh, industry as a career? I mean, I don't know how old you are. Do you remember the, like the, the, but back in the day, we had papers called the USA Today. You ever remember the, the USA Today paper? All right. They had these like, different color sections. Sports was red. Entertainment was purple. And then money was green. And I I used to read that, that opened up that area. And I was like, you know what? I, always, I probably should know something about this, but I don't understand any of these words. I don't know what all these ticker symbols and all this stuff means. And then one day I just made a decision, you know, I want to work with a financial company. And then I went to a library because back in the day you had to go to the library to get on the internet. Right. And, uh, there was a, there was an opening for a, uh, a position for a mutual fund company in, in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And, uh, went and applied. Didn't, I told the guy, I, like, I don't know anything about personal finance. I don't know anything about finances at all. I was brutally honest, which I think there's some value in doing that. And, uh, I got the job and I just kind of learned from there, you know, but really it's been my own self-study on the financial markets, on basic principles. Uh, and, and that's really where my education came from and working with a lot of clients as well. That's incredible, man. And 
what would you say are some of those lessons that you learned early on working for that that first, I believe you said mutual fund company? What yeah. were some things that you learned and, and took away from that experience? Well, I certainly learned the traditional financial, the model uh, of what people are told what to do with their money. Um, and, you know, that's the first thing that I learned is like, hey, you know, everyone's telling me I need to take like a percentage of what I take home and put it into retirement plan accounts. That's what I did. I did it like everybody else is told to do, you know, but then as an employee, I thought that was a good idea as, you know, I morphed into ownership and, you know, that, that kind of a journey, I realized, you know, you can continue to do that, but that's, it's going to just delay the process of your financial independence. Cause honestly, you know, the S and P 500 index fund is not going to make you wealthy, right? Um, putting money in a 401k plan is not going to make you wealthy. Owning a business, uh, getting that thing to expand, you know, real estate, those kinds of things are going to create a lot of wealth for you. So it just, I shifted my mindset over time as far as what I learned. Uh, but that was certainly one concept that I, that I learned early on. It's not a bad habit to have. You should take a percentage of what you make and, and set it aside. But I think what people are being told, especially business owners, is woefully incomplete compared to what they should do. So when you were in the process of making that transition from being a nine to five employee into ownership and into uh, becoming an entrepreneur and running your own business and operating your own company. I mean, how was that transition for you? Were you ever intimidated? Um, were you excited, apprehensive? What what emotions were you feeling as you were transitioning? Well, I had a, a mentor, so I, I joined a firm as an employee, but there was always the idea that I was going to eventually become uh, you know, a co-owner and a partner, which I did. Uh, and then there was a, uh, you know, a blow up of ownership. And then, you know, I kind of took over with another partner and, uh, I mean, there's just some things that you just, you, you don't know until you just jump in. There just really isn't, you know, you're just not going to know everything. I know everyone like wants all these little life hacks mm -hmm. and, but honestly, I think the, the going through those kinds of things has a lot of, has a lot of value to it, you know, and um, but that was like, uh, that's what I learned really early on is like, I, my work ethic wasn't where it needed to be when I was a nine to five, I realized that I had to really improve that, which I did. And, um, I just learned, I learned how to do what I needed to do. And then, but I did realize that I, in my roles, there are different roles in running a business. You know, you have, if you're a practitioner, you have that practitioner role. But then you also have your executive and your owner roles. And you got to know all three of those and understand that if you want to have a successful business. So I think really understanding that once you start a business, you're not just a practitioner. You're just not like, a, you know, working this as a job. I also as an owner and I need to know how to be an executive as well. I think that's really key. Absolutely, man. And I think you you made a really important point earlier. Um you know, and just stating that you help business owners view their practice like an investment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was just wondering if you can expand a little bit more on that and, and what you mean behind that or what that statement means to you. Well, look, I mean, most people that say they have a business, you know, is maybe themselves or one or two other people, but they're doing all the work, mm -hmm. right? That's not really, I mean, I guess you could technically say that's a business, but it's not sustainable because if something happens to you, that's it, right? Game yeah. over. Cash flows over with. Um, so you you have to start thinking like this thing is an investment. How do I create it so that it can run autonomously without me, and uh, I can uh, have this thing continue to be profitable, sustainable, and then transferable to somebody else at some point in time? Because there's other things that I want to do, other endeavors that I want to have. Um, but you have to have that mindset going into it. And a lot of people just can't let go. You got all the control freaks that say, I, I'm the only one that can do this. And it's like, well, keep doing that. You're going to be trapped. And, um, and the value of that business will never be significant enough. You know, I want to create this thing where I have multiple advisors that eventually want to take over at some point in time. 
and I'm just there kind of directing everything, you know, like a chairman of the board type of thing. And I mean, that's essentially what, you know, I mean, do you think Bill Gates is still programming? You know, do you think, you know, Jeff Bezos is down in like shipping? He's not doing all that stuff. They're, they're, they're guiding, you know, they're looking at acquisitions and st uh, strategic things. And I think everyone can should have that mindset of doing that for their business. Absolutely, man. And I think that's the thing that I appreciate about your company and your business model the most is that I feel like you have a passion and a real interest in learning how businesses work and learning how they operate and learning how to optimize the companies. And it, it seems like you put yourself in a really good place to be able to look at different businesses, study um, what different owners do, what yep. makes them tick and how to make them successful. So then you can, in a sense, take what you learn and apply it to yourself and apply it to other um, business owners, companies. So I think that's a really great model, um, you know, but I want to ask, what would you say are some proven methods on creating wealth outside of the practice? Well, I think it, it starts with the concept of this. If you own a business, right? I mean, that's one income source, mm -hmm. right? And for the household. And that's, if I ask most business owners, like, where does most of your income come from? They're going to say, well, it comes from my business, right? And I'm like, well, do you want that to be the condition for the rest of your life? And they're like, no, I don't want to be relying on one of anything. I'm like, well, how are you gonna how are you gonna expand and develop other income sources? They're like, I don't know. I was like, well, let's let's start with this. Everyone that owns a business, um, you know, again, you personally, I mean, like, if you own a business, you you own it, right? You may you may have it in like an LLC or something like that, but you're the member, you're the manager of that LLC. Okay. So it's owned at the household level. So then if you want to create other assets and you get that one business really starting to hum and purr, like flowing like the Mississippi, then uh, you want to make sure that a percentage of that revenue is channeled to the household to then use that to generate other income producing assets. So if you got a million dollar business or a $2 million business, 10% of that revenue should be paid to the household as a management fee. Okay. Uh, however you want to classify it. And, and then that money should be used not for consumption, not for cars and bigger houses and all that other stuff, but to buy real estate, you know, invest in markets, alternative investments, whatever it is. So that not only are you building your value of your business, but you're creating other assets outside of the business. And that way, when you go to transition out of the business, I'm not just relying upon the sale of this entity to have enough. I got all these other assets because I was smart in, in planning to begin with and taking that that man, that 10% right off the top. It's not 10% of what you take home. It's 10% of what the business revenue mm. is. It's a really big distinction that mm -hmm. people get wrong all the time. And I set it up like an expense. So it just comes directly from the business checking accounts to a personal called a wealth storage account. And I've gotten, I've shown people how to recover millions of dollars because the business will try to eat it up. It will try to spend everything that it makes and then some. So if you don't systematize uh, your profits like that, you will never have any. And that's generally what happens to a lot of business owners. So we try to fix that. Absolutely, man. And, and diversification is key. Having these multiple streams of income, that's what I feel like really leads to wealth. Like when you can make money without having to work, when you can make money while you're sleeping, you yeah. have these assets just constantly producing, constantly working for you. I mean, and once you bring that realization to your clients and, and to these business owners, what response do you typically get once they um, understand what you're saying? Because you know, for most business owners, they don't have time or necessarily the interest um, to focus on finances or to to lock in or to even figure out how to grow it. So most of the time they're just focused on, like you said, being that practitioner. So once yeah. they come to that realization and that light bulb turns on, you know, what are some of the responses that you hear, the feedback? Oh, I mean, you get, hey, I, I never I never thought I would have this much i didn't think my business could afford to do this um i feel if i finally feel like uh i'm getting full value out of my business 
Uh, I feel like um, I'm actually going to make it. You actually, you just, you get the responses of, you, know, you don't realize how level of despair a lot of business owners can feel, right? When they feel like their their business isn't working for them and they're stuck into it. So to give some people like that level of hope, I mean, that that is worth, that's worth whatever we have to go through. But most of the time when I tell people that they have to start taking 10% of their gross revenues and start channeling that to their household, I mean, I get, you know, you're crazy. No way I can do it. My office manager and my CPA will go crazy because of this. And I'm like, well, let them. I don't care. That's not my problem. Uh, you know, look, anytime you want to expand, you're going to be met with criticism. You're going to be mm -hmm. met with resistance. You're going to be met with pushback. And, but if it's something that is for your survival and the benefit of your survival, then it's worth it. So just expect it. I tell it to people all the time. Like if you're not getting pushback, you're not going hard enough. Absolutely. Because this universe is designed to push back against you every way, shape or form. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, as a business owner myself and, and, having a chance to speak with and talk with a lot of business owners, I feel like it's two important pieces um, that a business owner is looking for when they go to outside counsel or outside help. They're either looking to cut down on expenses, cut down on costs and save money, or they're looking to make more money. And if you can do both, then, I mean, it's a win all around for everyone. So, you know, I want to ask and understand more about the approach of reorganizing expenses to gain more control. Yeah. So I ask a business owner, for example, what your make, what your make break number is. Okay. Like when I say the term make break number, what, what do you think of when I say that number? Like. When you say make break, uh, the first thing that comes to my head is uh, to my mind make or break yeah so how much money do you need to make to stay in operation exactly exactly right so most people are going to say well this is this is how much i need just to stay afloat okay and then i ask them all right but you're just giving me the barest bones expenses you're not you're not accounting for your profits or your reserves as part of that number why not well uh, you need those things to stay afloat, don't you? Because you're not going to expand or you're not going to have money if you don't account for those things. So the first thing that most people get wrong is their make-break number. They have mm -hmm. the wrong make-break number because they're not accounting for these necessary expenses as part of that. So that's the first thing I do is I go in there and I show them like, look, you're underestimating um, how much you need to make to live the life that you want to live or for your business to stay solvent. Okay. And, you know, a lot of people ask like, what, what drives revenue for a business? And I remember talking to a guy one day that I thought was really like, had made like two, $3 million a year. I was like, I was like, dude, how do you make so much money? And I thought I was going to get this complex answer of like, you know, marketing promotion, whatever it is. You know what he said to me? He goes, cause I need it. And I was like, damn, like, so income comes from necessity, right? Like Wesley, if I said, I don't know if you have kids or not, but if I said that, you know, you know, to save your mom's life, you're going to need $10,000 by Monday at 10 o'clock. Guess what? You're going to come up with the money for that, right? Like necessity drives income. Nothing else does necessity. Okay. So when you look at a business, a business will make what it thinks it needs to make to survive. And if you think you need to make a hundred thousand a month, then guess what? You're going to make a hundred thousand a month, but you better hope that you factored in your profits, your reserves, all those things as part of that number. So the first thing that I do is I, as I reorganize what people think as their expenses and say, you're, you're missing about four or five different accounts that you need to have set up that are acting like expenses. 
And part of it, it generally comes out that most people are underestimating their make break number by about 20%, which is a big deal. It's so interesting to hear you, to hear you say that, you know, people make money based out of, or people make income based out of necessity because, yeah. you know, I've like read a lot of, I've read a lot and, uh, you know, listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of interviews. And it's so crazy because I've heard people say like, they'll buy a fancy car, they'll buy a nice watch. And then that will motivate them to keep working harder and to make more money. So like they, you buy an item or you, you have some sort of mindset style in mind and then some lifestyle in mind. And then you go and, and try to make your income up to that so you can actually afford that lifestyle. Which, I mean, I don't know, man. To me personally, I'm not a fan of that. I'd rather, I'd rather have some some uh, excess funds left over. But, you know. You don't, need, you don't need to do that to create a necessity. I don't need exactly. an emergency to create a necessity. Okay? Exactly. So I, I get where people have said that. I got friends that say that, too. That yep. say, go buy a big <laughs> Lamborghini. You know what I mean? That, <laughs> exactly. That, you know, go put yourself like $200,000 in debt. And it, look, you can do that that will create necessity for you. You don't <laughs> yeah. need to do that, right? What you need to do is make sure that the, what the business thinks it needs to make is, is actually, and this is created as a necessity for the organization, right? Yeah. And it will make that amount. It's got to try to spend it anyway. So you, but you just have to reorganize these things so that when money gets pulled out, the only way you're ever going to have any kind of surplus is if you physically remove it from the business, like that's the only way. Okay. Because the business or a household or a government, look at the government. I mean, we got, a we have a government that has $30 trillion in debt because they spend everything that, that comes in and then some, okay. Mm -hmm. Every organization will try to do that. That's just a natural law of money. Okay. But you can trick the business by putting in these things that look like they're, they're taken out like expenses, but they're really designed to create reserves so that you can buy other assets and income sources. And that, that's how you do it. You know, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's just reorganization, how you, uh, of the, of the cash flows of the business. Absolutely, man. And it's a great simplified way to um, just explain that concept. I mean, and it is, Simple doesn't always mean easy. It definitely takes discipline it does. to uh, use that ideology. But I mean, just from personal experience, man, I've been uh, budgeting every day for the past five years of my life. And I've always treated on the, on the personal side, I've always treated um, saving money as an expense. I treated it like a yes. bill and I yeah. still do to this day. Like I have, I have it. I have accounts where uh, my main account is automatically drafted out to go over to investments and to go over to savings. And I feel like that's the only way you really can get ahead, man. I agree it's with you 1,000%. It's the only way you'll be able to do it. Uh, I've tried other ways. That is the only, and it really came down to, you have to physically remove money exactly. from a source if you want to if you want to create reserves or investment accounts anywhere else. you got to move it. Money is an energy. You just can't yep. let it set static. It's got to move, exactly. right? So when you do that, it functions very well. And, and I'm telling you, keep that up, man. It, it will, it'll, it'll pay dividends off for you big time. Absolutely. And you know, that's the crazy part because, you know, working in the financial services industry myself, man, that's something that I realized. And it's, it's so cold the way you put it, that money is like energy and it has to constantly move because that's what the rich understand. They, mm -hmm. they know if I move money, if I move this amount of money at this certain time, okay, you know you can use high yield savings accounts right now because the interest rates are so high. So if you just move this this money to this account and then you move it here, it's all it's like a yeah. it's like a puzzle, man. It's just moving money around at the right time. If yeah. you understand that concept, it will lead to wealth. It will lead to cash flow. But I mean, with with that being said, you know there is an other side to money into making a lot of money. Most people just, um, you know, they have goals of like, okay, I want to make $4 million this year. But you may not think about the downside that comes with making $4 million. 
you know, if your business isn't set up right or whatever the case may be, you're going to be taxed on that possibly up to what, 40%. Yeah. So, you know, I want to ask you, how can someone protect their assets from lawsuits, taxes, or inflation, or all three? Okay. Well, let's start with, uh, let's start with inflation. All right. Now, I mean, man, if you're making 4 million bucks a year, do you really care if the price of milk goes from $3 a gallon to $6 a gallon? Absolutely not. <laughs> you don't care at all. <laughs> so the best hedge against inflation, it ain't gold. It ain't Bitcoin. It ain't, you know, silver. It's, I mean, those are stores of value, I guess you could say, but it's ha it's producing income far and above what you are making right now and what your expenses would be. Okay. And, and then investing wisely in places that you don't lose money and that create cash. That's the best hedge against inflation. It's having income producing assets. All right. Far and above what you're making right now. That's how you handle inflation. Um, lawsuits, um, you know, when it comes to, to uh, protection of your assets, I think, you know, look, I mean, if you're going to go through the heartache and headache of building 10, 15, 20 million dollars in assets, like, don't you think it's prudent to at least try to protect that stuff? You know, and you can use business entities. You can use different types of insurances. You, there's state laws that protect certain assets, like in the state of you live in Nevada, right? So, you know, certain assets are protected in the state of Nevada based upon their state laws. And then, you know, there's something called debt shields as well, which is like, you know, you have a debt against a, like a, a, a apartment building, you know, that, that, that there's asset protection there. So it's just, you know, getting getting all your assets together, using some tools there to, to protect your assets. And then the last one was taxes. And look, this is where you just have to make sure that you have a good team. You need to make sure that you are in communication with your CPA every single quarter, at least, right? Um, so there's prediction about what you're going to owe. And then there's a tax strategist there on your team that is combing through the tax code and, and showing you how to minimize your tax liability through legitimate methods of tax avoidance, not tax evasion, tax avoidance. And there's all kinds of things you can do. Right now, I see a lot of people buying real estate so they can use the depreciation of that real estate against their profits of their business right now, which I think is a, is a legitimate strategy. There's, um, yeah, uh, there is, uh, people that are, if you have enough business profits, you can create like your own insurance company or reinsurance company that you can use to, um, you know, as a risk management, uh, approach, um, there, look, there's, there's a lot of strategies out there. Uh, you just have to have someone that understands the tax code and understands the tax law, right? Not necessarily what the IRS is saying, because the IRS is going to say this, but the law says this. And most CPAs don't, they just listen to what the IRS says. They don't look at the law, right? So they tell most of their people, well, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Cause you're going to get, you know, audited. And it's like, that's not necessarily, okay. So what? All right. Um, I'm just going to do what the law says, but that's what I guess you, the, the, the quote unquote rich would say is that I don't listen to my I don't listen to like what the CPAs in fear have to say because CPAs are there to make sure that your tax returns are filed on time and that you're compliant. Right. And their biggest fear is you getting audited. That's their biggest fear. Okay. They're not there to minimize your tax liability, right. but you know, most of them, I mean, the two things that I've heard most accountants say to minimize your tax liability, put a bunch of money in your retirement plans or buy a bunch of equipment that you may or may not need. That's what most of them say. And okay, that's, that's lazy tax planning. So just make, make sure you build a good team. And I think that would help, you know, with your tax liability. Absolutely. You've spoken a lot about, you know, purchasing income producing assets and, you know, basically building up that hedge by, uh, buying cash flow and assets. So is there a specific asset class or a specific asset that you personally personally like to invest in and, and research and, and and kind of live in yeah so when when i look at 
like the type of business owners that we work with, which are mostly healthcare professionals. Um, I want them to number one, own the building that they have their, their, their business in. I think that would be very important. Okay. So I will try like heck to make sure that they can get ownership of the real estate that they own their business in. All right. And then I have them take 10% of their practice revenue. And then I, I have that channeled into like a, I call it a, just like a regular checking or savings account. Um, I mean, right now, if I had cash, I'd be buying T bills right now. Cause treasury bills are paying 4.7%, 4.6%, which is a hell of a lot more than what you're getting in your checking and your savings account right now. Um, but that being said, then I usually look at three different categories. Number one is, is other kinds of other types of real estate. So that could be, I like self-storage, be honest with you. I like self-storage. Um, but you know, you could look at multifamily, you can look at kind of the traditional, you know, income producing assets. The only thing is with that is if you're a busy professional, you don't have time to go out there and find deals and source deals and, and do all that stuff. So I, I find operators in those industries that are really good at what they're doing. And, um, you know, that would be like private placement, uh, types of real estate that, that I tend to recommend. I do myself and I recommend to my clients. So I found two that I really like on the self storage one on the self storage side, I can name them reliant investments. They do self storage. They're based out of Atlanta, uh, Atlanta. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. They're in, they're in Georgia. Um, but you know, that I do that. Number two, I I put a portion of money into insurance-based products, cash value life insurance, and um, uh, uh, primarily because it's a store of wealth. There's there's tax protections and there's asset protections to them, and I know that you know people listening to this, you know, I'm sure they oh annuities, cash value life insurance, that's terrible, that's bad, you know, they're ripoffs. They're really not, you know, banks own tons of cash value life insurance. Um, they are, they just have to be utilized properly. And then, you know, look, I'm not anti like public securities in the stock market. I just think people have to do it a little bit more intelligently and they just can't throw all their money into that area, but dividend paying stocks, those kinds of companies that have been around a long time that pay dividends. I, I think that there's, um, or, you know, uh, like I said, treasury bills, municipal bonds, especially if you have a lot of wealth, like I just don't, I'm not I'm not like compartmentalized into it's just like one but the other ones suck, you know. It's like all three of them have a proven track record of paying uh, yields and dividends. So why not do all three? You Absolutely. Know? Just do them right. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And those, uh, you know, life uh, life insurance and insurance policies that you talked about, man. I mean, great source of liquidity. Yes. Uh, down down yeah. the road. Exactly. And, and using it to leverage and build new businesses and make new investments. So, I mean, these are all great, um, you know, great investment opportunities, man. It's something I've been interested in, too, is, is these storage facilities. Uh, yeah, that's something I personally like and, and want to get involved with. But, you know, you mentioned something earlier that I think is really important and that I've heard every successful person say. Um, you know, and that's having a mentor, you know, having somebody that is is kind of where you want to be and, and shows you the ropes and shows you the path of how to get to your desired goal and desired destination with like the least amount of roadblocks as possible, I'll say. Yeah. So, I mean, wh what were some of the benefits and why was it important for you to to find a mentor and to, um, you know, just, just work with someone who's... Uh, who had that wisdom and experience. Yeah. I think, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of torn on it cause I'm still not a hundred percent sure that that's what I needed. But, mm -hmm. um, I will say that, uh, you know, in the beginning stages, it was one of those, this guy knows more than me and he certainly talks like, um, and I want to learn from that cause some of the things that he's saying are really important. And, but, you know, you still have to kind of stick to your own path, your own righteous path, and you still have to stick to your own integrity and stick to your own ethics and, and those kinds of things. And I think a, uh, a mentor that is in alignment with those things already is important. But you really, at some point in time, you know, you're going to break from your mentor. I mean, the, I forget the saying, the, ma the, the student overcomes the master at some point in time. 
mm-hmm. and you got you are going to have to get your, your show on the road um i mean i think there's value in giving you certainty and there's there's value in giving you um guidance but um yeah i, I don't know man i'm still not like I think it's I think it's valuable to like find someone that has has done it successfully, but I hear a lot of people say you never take advice from from you know people that have less than you. I've I've heard that too, or never take advice from someone that doesn't have more money than you. And I don't think that's correct at all. I don't think that's correct. But anyway, I don't know. I'm still kind of torn on that. Yeah, man, I don't agree with that statement either. Like, don't don't take advice from somebody that has more that does not or that has less than you. Because I feel like you can learn from anybody, any if age, you're willing, any stage in life. Yeah, you can learn from every situation, every person that you come across. There's a yeah. there's a really popular ju- I don't know uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach. Okay, this guy's never won a match. He's never won a title. He's never won anything like that. Right. But everyone goes to him because he knows that game, right? Mm-hmm. So just because someone has more money than you, or they have a bigger business than you, uh, or they have less than than what you currently have, it doesn't mean that they don't have something valuable to exactly. give to you. You know, I I hate that when people say that. So that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nah, man, me too, man. And um, well, it's funny that you mentioned Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because I've been watching a lot of Joe Rogan podcasts here. Lately. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he talks about Brazilian uh, jiu-jitsu all the time. So now I'm kind of interested in learning more about it myself. But, yeah, um, you know, I want to ask, what have been some of the most effective ways that you've gained new clients, um, you know, in the, in the industry, in a field like that, that you're in? I can imagine that word of mouth is, is really one of a, one of the main drivers, but I want to hear from you. Like what have been some strategies that you used, if any, or like, is, is it all word of mouth? No, I mean it, uh, look, this is, this is a, uh, something that's still in progress. Right. But cause I decided, we decided to focus on a niche, you know, that kind of narrows down that community and these industries, I mean, like veterinarians like other veterinarians and they, they trust other veterinarians. Right. Physical therapists trust other physical therapists, you know, dentists trust other dentists. So, you know, I got in these communities. Um, we, we first started by uh, working with like consultants in these industries. So the first thing we did is we we found other consultants that were in these industries that had, you know, these people as clients that I wanted as clients. And we said, hey, look, we'll teach your people about finances. We'll create a course for them. You can sell it to them. Keep all the money. I just want the lead. Right. And that was one of the things that we started off with doing, but then it, you know, that, that would add a shelf life because I didn't want to be reliant upon other people just doing that. So then we started getting into more of like the social media advertising, going direct, going to shows, um, and really, you know, getting clients, most importantly, getting clients to then refer to us Mm -hmm. and getting us in front of their, their tribe, so to speak. So it's something that is continual, you know, it's something that will continue to, to kind of cultivate, but I think being a person of trust in that industry, like I would say like in the physical therapy industry, you know, people would say, you know, if they heard my name, Eric, oh yeah, he's a financial advisor for physical therapists. He's a guy that knows what he's talking about, you know? So I think it takes time, but you can certainly develop trust in these, in these industries because the people do talk to each other. Absolutely, man. And I think, that was really a genius uh, business model, man. Just going, one, going to the consultants because they're like the source. So they're the uh, they're yeah. the main point person. They're the source of 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 the of that industry or of that world, and 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 the people already look to them. So that's genius. But then offering them value beyond just saying hey share your customers with me yeah. you're bringing that monetary value to them like hey um we have this course you can sell it we you can keep all the money like that that's the genius part like that's where you bring in the real value like um you're not just asking for something but you're you're also presenting them with something as well you got to keep the exchange in like you just can't exactly. ask someone to say refer me because we'll take care of your clients i mean i, I learned early on that the people don't uh, this that they definitely want 
some kind of, cause it takes, man, it's hard to acquire clients, you yeah. know? I mean, especially in the, in, in, in the world of finances where people don't trust anybody. Absolutely. You know, they just don't trust anybody. Absolutely, man. So what would you say are some of the roadblocks or lessons that you've learned early on, you know, or that just, that you've learned throughout your entrepreneurship journey? Oh man. Um, like if you own a business, you got to make sure that you constantly establish the, the culture, the vision of the business. That's something that is your role as an owner. Uh, and that, you know, keeping toxicity out of the business is really important. Like if you want to see your, your revenue jump 20, 30%, just get rid of that person that, you know, in your organization is, is, is not there to enhance the organization. I think that's, that's definitely a key inspecting your environment, uh, for those, those types of people. Um, gosh, what else, man? I'm sure there's some other things that I could think of. You got to pay attention to your finances. Like I, I, I use this analogy quite a bit. You know, if you have kids, you know, you take your attention off your kids for like two seconds and you have no idea where they're going to be, you know, well, your money's just like that. You take your attention off your money for just a matter of, you know, a week or two and you have no idea what you'll, you'll be surprised where it goes. You know, it tends to go everywhere. So definitely um, paying attention and then know your roles in the business. I think that's another one. Like, you know, know what you're always going to be an owner, but you can kind of choose whether or not you want to be practitioner you want to be more an executive and just find out where your skills are and then make sure you hire that leadership team that can really help run the business at some point in time you know i mean you can you know there's other things you have to do you gotta you gotta make sure you keep you know statistics and measurements and all those things but that's more of tactics i think having a real strong strategy is important what's the importance of having a good team and how did you focus on building yours? Well, first it came, I didn't want to, I didn't want to talk to clients for the rest of my life. Cause I knew like, all right, I can do this, but I'm never going to be able to grow something that has any value to it. So then I had to write up my hat, all the successful actions that I had as an advisor, and then make sure that the new advisors had the same success that I had. And then, you know, then I had to start picking individuals in the organization that, and it, and it takes a lot. I mean, look, I mean, it's like one in 18 people before you find a real gem of a leader that, that seems to be like the number of people you got to go through to find a real good leader. But once you find that really good leader, then man, make sure you pay them whatever you can to keep that person tied to you, um, is really, really important. So it, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that, that I think is, as we've, we've grown the business, you know, we've just kind of like that guy is, is, is someone that can organize people, respect him. Um, he can coordinate, he can solve problems. He's going to be a leader and I'm going to make him a leader and I'm going to tie him in to the profit and I'm going to pay him, you know, more than what probably other people would pay them because those, those kinds of individuals are extremely valuable. So we're still building that leadership team right now, you know, but I think, you know, as, as time morphs on, you know, we'll continue to build that, that layer. You don't need a lot of them, maybe three or four of them. That's it. That can run, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. How do you define success as an entrepreneur and as a business owner? You know, I used to think it was more money, but I think it was, uh, you know, for me, it's just, it's just getting to, uh, our capacity. Like, like my first, what I'll define success right now is like when I have like 10, you know, advisors and we're servicing like over a thousand clients, you know, and it's just, uh, getting results from our clients being well known and being a source, someone that someone looks at and says, yeah, these guys are trustworthy, especially in the financial world. I'll, I'll define that as success when I see that. And then when I have ultimately the time to be able to go do other expansion activities, 
then I'll, I'll probably say, you know what, we've reached a level of success that I think is, is pretty good. Like how many businesses are actually doing like $10 million in revenue, small businesses? It's not very much, you know, it's probably like 1%. So when I get to that level, I'll feel like, okay, that's, that's a level of success that I think is, is pretty good, you know, just to have a target there. How would you like for people to remember you as well as this company that you've built? Um, well, again, I think it would be as someone that uh, created a positive effect, someone that uh, it was looked at as um, an innovator in some respect. And I would like to change the way people view financial advisors, because right now I don't think there's a very positive view of financial advisors. That'll be kind of the next phase in that I want to change the way that people look at financial advisors. Because right now I think they just look at them as like all these people do is just ask for money and charge a fee to manage money. And that's it. And that's not really what I think a financial advisor should be doing. So at some point I'd like to change that that persona they became like used car salesmen pretty fast yeah I, and i feel like it's that way for the uh, population of people who don't use them or haven't been paired with the good one yeah there is like, there's definitely good ones and there's bad ones yeah absolutely and then it's like if you if you never been next to one or never sat down with one, then you it's easy to think like, oh man, okay, these people are a certain type of way, but he's gonna ask me to buy a product. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. and that's the that's the that's the thing that most advisors are not really doing planning and management activities and find in those kinds yep. of things. They're just selling products. Yeah. You know, exactly. let's see how fast I can sell you an insurance policy. Let's see how fast I can sell you an investment account or a retirement account. You know, that's not really what a financial advisor should do. What does the future of Econologics financial advisors look like to you? And I mean, what, you, you, what time frame? Man, I'll say the next five years. But yeah. I, well, no, you know what? Let me take that back. You said that you will feel the, the goal is to um, bring in $10 million worth of revenue. How do you plan to, to reach that goal? How do you plan to scale up to, to that level? Yeah, it's going to be through continued client acquisition, uh, building a layer of leadership so I can do more promotional activities. And it's continuing to um, train advisors that are getting real results with our clients and you know spending time with them i don't have a model where our advisors are saying hey you know we'll talk once or twice a year and do a portfolio review it's not like that our service model is like i'm talking to these i'm like in your face our, our advisors are in your face all the time are you doing this are you doing this are you doing this and and then that way i know that we're going to get better results and i think if we do that then you know i should be able to hit that target within the next couple of years Eric Miller, man, this has been incredible. I've enjoyed our conversation, man, and I, I enjoy how um, you break things down and make it seem like, man, this is possible for, for anyone to do and for anyone to accomplish, whether whether it's on the business side or the personal side of finance. So thank you for sharing this knowledge and information with us, man, and I, I really appreciate it getting a chance to sit down and talk with you and pick your brain. I love it, man. I'm going to send you a, a, a free book too. I just wrote a book, How to Become a Financial Beast. So I need to make sure I get all your, your mailing address before we leave. Absolutely, man. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Eric.